Well, I want to capitalize on uh, my wife coming up here to give the announcement about the women's ministry. I'm so looking forward to that time, not to get my wife out of the house. I don't like that, but I'm thrilled that she's so excited. And uh, ladies, you get to go and and hear Kristen Harvey, a friend of ours who loves the Lord, is a phenomenal teacher. And we were actually just up there in that area yesterday. It's so gorgeous up in the Santa Cruz area. And um, yeah, you're going to have a great time. So make sure after the service, you can go and uh, sign up. There will be a table out there if you want to ask more questions about the women's retreat. You want to take advantage of that. And I think I just saw Josh. Josh, where are you? Where's, how's baby Lucas doing? Sweet. Yeah. 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 Well, we love you and Sierra. And Lucas is now how many days old? Sweet, man. Well, hey, praise the Lord. We give uh, God thanks for life. And uh, we're looking to, um, to the Word now, where we have not just physical life, but spiritual life. So why don't you grab your Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. Let me begin by asking this question. What makes you happy? When you think about the things in this life that make you happy, maybe the first thing that comes to your mind is your spouse. Maybe it's your husband or your wife that make you happy. Your family, certainly. Maybe it's your children. Does it make you happy to be outdoors? The smell of the ocean. Love that smell. Maybe for you, it's up in the mountains in the snow. I don't get you, but hey, more power to you. Maybe you like the mountains and the cold, but maybe it's just seeing the beautiful trees. Does the weather make you happy? How about going on vacation, visiting new places, new adventures? Does it make you happy when you have money to do those things? You don't have to stress it. Maybe job security is what makes you happy. Getting a raise might be something that makes you happy. How about just eating good food, going to restaurants and enjoying yummy delicacies? How about exercising? Does it make you happy to exercise, to get that run in, that swim in, until someone's shaking their head? Maybe get, get, get in the weights, lift the weights, accomplishing your goals. What is it that makes you happy? Well, the things that make you happy certainly change from time to time. I don't think it's always the same, but there is one thing for sure that what doesn't change is your desire to be happy. You always have a desire to be happy. That's why we have so many songs that we like, like Don't Worry, Be Happy. And then there's just the song that's just called Happy. Clap along if you know what happiness is to you. Clap along if you feel like that's what you want to do. You're familiar with that song and so many others. So happy together. Thought that was sung by the Beatles. I was way off. My wife would be offended. It's actually sung by the Turtles. Your parents, I'm sure, probably watched Happy Days back in the day. We all love movies with happy endings. For those of you that saw that movie, Pursuit of Happiness, it was a tearjerker. And the reason why is because it ended with a happy ending. We love happy endings. So much so, this idea is ingrained in our American culture. We can trace it all the way back to the preamble in the Declaration of Independence, where we're reminded that these are self-evident truths. We were created, you know it, equal, 
and endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, and among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, what's interesting, for those of you that have been in America for any length of time, or for those of you that just got here, you realize that not all Americans are actually happy. We are the land of the free, the home of the brave, and even though we are the second wealthiest nation on earth, it just really seems like the citizens of America are noticeably unhappy. So while the founding documents say we can pursue happiness, it doesn't promise happiness. You can chase after it, but there's no guarantee you'll catch it. And I think one of the reasons why so many people aren't happy is not because of the lack because of a misunderstanding of where happiness truly lies. We don't understand what true happiness is, and that's part of the problem, because we're pursuing it in the wrong places. Some think happiness is found in possessions, but the truth is that happiness is actually found in a person, namely in God, in Christ. You see, when we pursue the God of holiness, then Happiness comes fully equipped. In the very first psalm, the psalm that we'll look at today, the psalm that we call the hymn book of the Old Testament, it tells us exactly where to find happiness. And so if you look on your bulletin, I've entitled this message, Two People, Two Paths, and Two Places, because this first psalm, what it does is it opens up the door to the rest of this altar. And what we find here in Psalm 1 is that there's only two people, two kinds of people, Two paths, two places. Psalm 1 divides humanity into the righteous and the wicked. All throughout the Psalms, we see this, that if you are righteous, you're blessed. But if you're wicked, you are cursed. Those two kinds of people are on two dramatically different paths. Psalm 1 highlights the the lifestyle and fruit of both of those paths. The righteous are on that narrow road, whereas the wicked are on the the broad road that's headed to destruction The intro to the Psalter begins here because throughout the rest of the psalm, we really learn that there's only two ways to live. There's the way of blessing, and if you follow that way of blessing, it leads to life. But there's another way. There's a way of the wicked, the way of the sinner, a way of the ungodly, and that way leads ultimately to death. So let's go before the Lord and ask him to Help us see wonderful things from Psalm 1. Let's pray. Father, we are desperate for you. We've sung, we've prayed, we're praying again because we understand that apart from your spirit working in our hearts and minds and our affections, Lord, we can't respond to this truth the way that we should. And so we beg of you to please meet us in our hour of need. Help us to behold wonderful things from your word. Help us to actually do what this psalm says, to meditate on your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's our main idea. If you're taking notes and you'll see it up on the screen, Psalm 1 persuades us to walk in the way of the righteous by delighting in the teaching of Yahweh. Psalm 1 persuades us to walk in the way of the righteous by delighting in the teaching of Yahweh. And this psalm is really, really easy and clear to break down because verses 1 through 3 speak of the righteous, and then there's a contrast in the last part of the psalm, 4 through 6, which speak of 
the wicked. And so that's how we'll break it up. If you are looking at the outline there, one through three is the path of the righteous, and four through six is the path of the perishing. And we'll look at some of those major headings under the path of the righteous. First, we'll look at what the righteous declines, what the righteous delights in, and what the righteous in the psalm is depicted by. And then we'll look at the path of the perishing, and we'll see how the wicked differ from the righteous, how the wicked are dead, doomed, and damned. So there's our outline. But before we jump into the content of the outline, I think it's important to kind of set the stage, and I want to do that by making some introductory comments about the Psalms in general. Well, you know we're reading through the Psalms. We read through one this morning. We're praying through the Psalms. You see them up on the screen. The Psalms are rich and beautiful. For many of you, the Psalms, I mean, it's your favorite Old Testament book. You pray through the Psalms. You have Psalms written in your home. That is because that's the way it was supposed to be. It is the prayer book of the Christian. But we don't just read it and study it and learn it. We pray it constantly. Our heartbeat is found in the Psalms. It is also a praise book. That's why we call it a hymnal. The Psalms is also full of wisdom and instruction But one of the most beautiful things about the Psalms is it meets us right where we're at. Because as human beings, we experience all these kinds of emotions, and our emotions are up and down and high and low, and the Psalms capture that perfectly. So as we wrestle through our emotions, the Psalms really give us a voice to express that. If your life is going well and things are fantastic and you feel blessed, then you can turn to a Psalm of thanksgiving and gratitude, and you can repeat that and sing that. But there's also times where we're sad and lonely and frustrated. Well, there's psalms for that as well. When you're feeling anxious, when you're fearful, then you can go to psalms and flip and find them, and you'll discover that they provide lots of comfort. They help our thinking go back Godward. How about if you're in sin, weighed down by sin? We can go to the psalms because the psalms teach us what genuine repentance looks like, what genuine penance looks like. If you've got a problem with God, you're frustrated with God, and you're being real and vulnerable with God, you'll go to the Psalms and you'll see that the psalmist had those same feelings. Why, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Do you not hear me, O Lord? The Psalms are beautiful because it really does capture all human emotions, good, bad, But I want you to notice here, as we stand at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, that really those two psalms, the introductory psalms, are like the beautiful gates that are going to open up the whole Psalter into understanding something about the richness and the character of God. We call this the treasury of the psalms. Now, as you look there at Psalm 1, you see that there's no subscript. Most of the Psalms, they do have a subscript, which tells us who the author is. We don't see that here. We don't see it in Psalm 2 either, which also means that we don't know the time that it was written, but we can say that's okay because we know it's written by God, and we also know that these truths are timeless. So let's enter in and see what the psalmist writes concerning the path of the righteous. Look there at verse 1. He begins, how blessed is the man. Now, that Hebrew word, asher, it's a beautiful word, and it's actually fronted in the Hebrew text. It's a word that's not only important, but it's a theme throughout Scripture, blessing, blessed. 
And you say, well, what does that, what does that mean? You can open up a, an English dictionary and you could find things. And even nowadays, our, our modern vernacular has hijacked that. And so you see hashtags blessed and blessed is usually associated with favorable circumstances and financial wealth. But what does the Bible say about blessing? How does God define blessing? One of the best ways to figure that out is just to go to the Bible and see how it describes it. And so in the book of Psalms, that word blessed occurs 25 times a share. And this is what you'll discover. You know this passage, Psalm 32 and verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account, and whose spirit there is no deceit. Or how about Psalm 34, 8? Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 65, 4, how blessed is the one who you choose and bring near to you that he would dwell in your courts. He will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. Psalm 112 and verse 1, praise Yah, how blessed is the man who fears Yahweh, who greatly delights in his commandments. In Psalm 146.5, how blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh, his God. There's just a small sample, but if you look through the Psalms and you come across this word I share, what the Bible is saying is, you're blessed if your sins have been forgiven. You're, you're blessed if you're tasting and seeing the goodness of the Lord. You're blessed if God has drawn near to you. You're blessed if you're receiving help and if you have hope in the Lord. You see, blessing is both a condition and an emotion. And this Hebrew word, it's a beautiful blend of these two things. Blessing comes to all those who are rightly related to God, and the benefits that come as a result of that are incalculable. And that's why the psalm begins this way, because God wants you to know what exactly a blessed person experiences. So really, it's an exclamation. It's a declaration, and the word is in the plural. Oh, how many blessings there are for God's righteous. Asher haish. Blessings for this man. Now, how are these blessings described? The psalmist begins by telling us what this man does not do. Look at the text. How blessed is the man who does not. And so he begins to characterize this righteous man by what he declines what he avoids, he who does not listen to, who does not do, and who does not take company with, all in the negative, three times this verse states that those people are happy who do not associate with the wicked. And so look again there at verse 1. We'll focus on this advice that the righteous declines. It says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And that phrase there, walking, is just a Jewish idiom for this is how someone lives. We don't live according to the counsel of wicked. That is, when you hear worldly advice, you don't heed that worldly 
advice. One of my friends and now professors and the president of Masters University, he said this way back in the day. He said, if you buy into a view, you get a worldview for free. If you buy into a view, then it comes packaged with the whole entire worldview and you get that for free. So if you're buying into the ways of the world, the thoughts of the world, the emotions of the world, the the priorities of the world, the plans of the world, then that worldliness begins to shape who you are. The worst advice I got before I got married was, don't get married. Why would you do that? Monogamy is horrible. Marriage is a ball and chain. That advice is the worst advice. And I even observe how some of my friends who gave me that advice are living, and God always proves true. So who are you listening to? Good place to begin. Teenagers, who do you enjoy hanging around with and why? You have to admit that you are very impressionable. You are easily influenced. You might not think so, but you are. Who are you listening to? Young adults, what kind of relationships are you invested in right now? Do you spend time with wise people? Because the principle is true. You walk with the wise, you'll become what? Wise. But it's also true that bad company corrupts good morals. When the Bible says, do not be unequally yoked, do you say, that's not for me. I, 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 can, I can overcome that one. Now, don't try to rationalize that one away. It's a clear command given for your good because God desires blessing for you. So the righteous person, he declines heeding the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't listen to their advice. But also, look, it's not just the advice, it's the actions. It says, nor stand in the way of sinners. And and sin is a beautiful archery term for missing the mark. There's a mark, there's a goal, there's an aim, but you have missed it entirely. And biblically speaking, to miss the mark means that we are falling short of the will and desire of God. So sin is the transgression of his revealed will. And anyone, anyone who lives contrary to the word of God is in sin. And to stand in the path of sinners means that you're living by wrong values, wrong goals, and your lifestyle is then now marked by sin. And so if you, again, want to experience this blessing and be the blessed man, you cannot listen to the advice of the world. You, you cannot uh, continue in the actions of sinners. But look, look what else it says. It says you don't want to be numbered among the scoffers. The righteous will not only decline godly advice and actions, but they will refuse, repudiate, disdain the attitudes of the scoffers. That word sit, yashab, in Hebrew just means to dwell It means to remain, to abide. And the emphasis here is that you've settled down. This is now your home. You've become comfortable. You've become content. And because of that, this is now your condition. You see, when you come to our house and you take a seat at our dinner table, well, for that evening, you're a part of the family. Well, you don't want to be a part of this family you don't want this association, the seat of scoffers. You say, well, what's, what's a scoffer? This is the only time that it appears here in the Psalms. But when you flip on over to Proverbs, we get a taste of what a scoffer is. And it's not a good picture. A scoffer is a, 
as a nasty picture of someone who mocks and derides and speaks scornfully and, and shows contempt. So Proverbs 14.9 says, ignorant fools scoff at guilt. Proverbs 19.28, a vile witness scoffs at justice. Proverbs 21.24, arrogant, haughty, scoffer are his names, whose acts with furious uh, arrogance. Proverbs 24.9, the scoffer is an abomination to men. You know, the interesting thing is that our culture actually loves scoffers. And we've put scoffers up on a platform. How do I know that? Because they're on the talk shows in the morning and in the evening. And they do stand-up, guys like Ricky Gervais, who, who loves to make fun at, at Jesus and at Christians. And Bill Maher, who creates documentaries called Religious, right? Because religious is ridiculous. And, and all of you are just foolish, right-winged, uh, radical morons for being Christians and following a dead, quote-unquote, Savior. That is a scoffer. Christians, listen, we need to be careful who we listen to. We need to be careful who we're entertained by. Because what the Scriptures say here is you listen to the council, you stand in their way, and then you eventually sit down with them and become like them. You see, the psalmist what he's trying to do here is explain that there really is no neutrality. If you're not in a right relationship with God, you will drift this direction. There is a natural negative digression of sin, and it's to move us from just casual acquaintance, nothing wrong, just walking by, nothing to see here, but then that moves you to involvement with sin to ultimately there's entrapment in that sin. And that is how sin works. It wants you to sit down and be comfortable. It's not content with you just walking by. It doesn't want you to window shop. It wants you to come into the store, sit down so it can kill you. That is what sin wants. Turn with me real quickly to Proverbs chapter 7. I want to show you from Proverbs just this process And for those of you who may be struggling with lust or pornography, this is something to write down and paste it on your computer and never take it down. Proverbs chapter 7 and starting in verse 6, you see that there's a young man. It says he's lacking a heart of wisdom. He's just, he's just passing through. He's striding along the way to her house. He's, he's walking. And what happens? She meets him and her, with her cunning heart, she's boisterous and rebellious. It says that she seizes him and kisses him. She stops him in his tracks and she seduces him. Look at verse 21. With her abundant persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she drives him to herself. He suddenly follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of an ignorant fool until, verse 23, an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare and he does not know that it will cost him his soul. He was just walking by. Listen, sin wants mastery over you. It wants to turn your walking into standing and into sitting. It wants you to be numbered among the wicked and the sinners and the scoffers. That's what those three verbs are there to do. Walk, stand, sit. They're showing us the slippery slope of evil 
and how evil is never passive, but it's always, always descending into worse and worse sin so that the longer that you go, the worse you get. And all begins with just listening to some advice, then following in those actions, and then it becomes your attitude which characterizes you. Advice, actions, attitudes, that's who you are. And this psalm is saying, don't go that way. Avoid that at all costs. There's something so much better and enjoyable and satisfying for you. Blessing is yours. The righteous person declines that wicked lifestyle. He disdains godless priorities. Now, let me caution you here. Because sometimes we have a knee-jerk reaction and it's like, okay, push the eject button and and I'm just not going to be a part of the world at all. I'm going to shut myself off completely to the world. And that's not what we're supposed to do. Who's going to go and preach the gospel? Who's going to go and love people? Who's going to go and point people to Jesus? So the solution is not to hit the eject button. No, the solution is to be engaged. Just don't be like the world. Steve Lawson would always say this. He says, look, you're not in the water. You're in the boat. Just don't let the water get in the boat. Your non-Christian family and friends and coworkers and classmates and teammates, they need you to bring them the gospel. The psalm is just warning us to guard your hearts and minds. Don't adopt that kind of way of thinking and that behavior that's so opposed to Christ Because once you start thinking like a fool, you will act like a fool, and ultimately you'll become a fool. So there you have it, three negatives in verse 1. Now in verse 2, we see the positive. And it's one, one positive. Verse 1 tells us where we're not to get our information and what we're not to be influenced by. And now verse 2 tells us where we are to get our information and what we are to be mainly influenced by. But it's not just information we're after, it's satisfaction. And I love this. Look at verse 2. It says, But, strong contrast, his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. You see, the blessed man's life isn't just about avoiding or abstaining from sin, but it's about aggressively pursuing pleasure in God and his word. Well, you say, what does the righteous person delight in? It says there, he delights in the law of Yahweh. Warren Wiersbe so aptly puts this. He says, the blessee must first be separated, but you don't stop there. He must also be saturated. Separated from the world, saturated with the word. But notice that the relationship the blessed man has with the word, it says that he delights in the law of Yahweh. And you have to take a step back because for this writer of the psalm, what is the law of the Lord? What is the law of Yahweh for him? See, on this side of the cross, we've got the whole shebang, all 66 beautiful books. But what about the person who wrote the psalm? When he says the law of the Lord, what's he talking about? Yeah, you say he's maybe 10 commandments, maybe the 613. Well, it's the first five books of the Old Testament that are his and available to him. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Some of the hardest books you have, you get maybe to Leviticus and then you stop your Bible in the year plan. But for the psalmist, he says, all of it, I delight in. They're my joy. 
He delights in the word of God. Give me the word of God. Now, for us, all of God's written revelation should be a delight. We're to read it and study it and pray and meditate on it. Our souls need to be saturated and satisfied in it. I've been accused of idolizing the Bible. It's called bibliolatry. You worship the Bible. You're making too much of the book. I have a relationship with Jesus, is what people say. You don't need the book. How does that work? When Christ is revealed through his word, he is the word made flesh. David said, no, no, no. The law of God is more desired than gold. You say, well, how is that possible? You know, C.S. Lewis, he, he wrestled with this. He's only got one book, one commentary on, on a Bible, and it's actually a Bible book, and it's the Psalms. Listen to what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, this whole idea of desiring the law of God, he says, this was to me at first very mysterious. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. I can understand that a man can and must respect these statutes and try to obey them and assent to them in his heart, but it is very hard to find how they could be, so to speak, delicious. How they exhilarate. You see, C.S. Lewis there was onto something. The Bible says that it's more than just rules and regulations and, and even instruction, but it's actually satisfying. Psalm 19.8 says this, the precepts of Yahweh are right, but they're not just right, they rejoice the heart. They're more desirable than gold, even, yes, much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb, and moreover them by your servant is warned. In keeping them, the Bible's promises, there is great reward. And because there's great reward, it's because it's so satisfying, and because God wants you to partake and participate in such joy, he tells us, he commands us to meditate on it day and day night. And that's where we say, hmm, what does this mean, meditation? It's not talking about transcendental meditation. It's not talking about cut off your brain and start humming and just lose yourself. That is not what biblical meditation is. Rather than being disengaged in your mind, you're fully engaged with your mind. You're far from participating in a silent activity, but it's verbal. The word picture is beautiful. It's like an animal, like a cow, Chewing the cud. Now, I don't have animals, but I do have two boys in my house. And so mommy hooked up some pancakes yesterday with some bacon. And so when my boys eat, I they're singing and they're talking while they're eating. And I realize they do that because I do that when I have tacos. That, that is the picture. That it is so enjoyable and, and maybe for... For us, when the cow does it, he's digesting and bringing it back up and digesting it. And you say, oh, that's nasty. But he's getting all the nutrition out. He, the nutrients, he wants, to, he wants to enjoy them. And he wants to enjoy the taste. And, and so there's this repetition and it's constant. And he's musing and he's mulling over it. That is what biblical meditation is. You're speaking to yourself the word of God. You're meditating on it. It's not passive. It's not a quick glance at it. No, you're, you're delighting in it and spending time with it. If you're not meditating on the word, listen, you are missing out. 
Meditation on the word, this is the link between theological theory and just knowing stuff about God and doxological practice. As you repeat it to yourself, it comes out in your actions. Be slow to speak, dumb. Be slow to speak. Be slow to speak. That has saved me a lot of heartache and trouble in my marriage. So listen, when you come to the word, this is what you should be doing. Is there something about the character of God that I can see here as I'm reading? Is there a facet of the gospel I haven't yet seen and I can appreciate? Is there an example here for me to follow? Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a promise to claim? Is there a prayer to repeat? Is there a command to obey? Is there a condition to meet? Is there a verse to memorize? Is there an error to mark? Is there a challenge to face? When I first stepped on the campus of the Master's College, now the university, and I heard this from Dr. MacArthur, I said, I've never approached my Bible like this. I wasn't asking questions. I was just reading. And once I began to ask questions in my Bible reading, God began to reveal himself more and more and more to me. You see, meditation truly forms your character and it informs your convictions. So we need to read it and study it and meditate on it and muse on it with intentionality. And it says we're to do it day and night. And just real quickly, obviously, he's not meaning in a literal sense that every second of every day you should be in your Bible. But what he's saying is as you go out through your day, you're thinking the thoughts after God and his character and his word. Deuteronomy 6.4, you're familiar with the Shema. Shema, Israel, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We know that part. But so important, right after God reveals this, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words, which I'm commanding you today, listen to this, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall speak of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. Translation, day and night. The word of God needs to be on your heart, on your mind, in your mouth in your affections, day and night. And this is where I'm talking to myself at 21 years old. I just don't have time to read the Bible. I'm a busy guy. I'm going to school. I'm on the basketball team. I I just don't have time to do that. Here's a good exercise. This morning, if you have an iPhone, it told you how much screen time you spend. I heard uh, John Piper one time say that uh, Facebook was a gift given by God so that you would realize that you actually do have time to read the Bible. (laughs) Think about it. How much time do you spend watching TV on social media? All of those things are being recorded in heaven so that when we get to heaven, we can't say, God, I didn't have any time. Listen, God is zealous for our joy. And he doesn't want us to shortchange ourselves by settling for lesser, lesser pleasures So let me ask you this. What is it that you are delighting in? As you go through your day, today, what will be the thing that will bring you delight? Is it the law of the Lord? This is a treasure trove that God has gifted us by himself. And he wants to make us eternally happy with his word because he wants to give us himself. So don't think of, I got to read the Bible. I got to put in my time. It's not duty. It's not drudgery. The Bible says it is delight. So the happy person, he's described by what he declines, what he delights in. And now look there at verse 3. He's described by 
what the righteous depicts. Verse 3, And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not, leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. And here he just piles on the rich imagery. First notice that he's planted. He's a planted tree. He's not a twig. He's not a stump. The Hebrew actually says that he's transplanted by streams of water. And for those of you who have maybe been to Israel, you recognize that it is a dry and barren land in some parts. There's a big difference between the Sea of Galilee, which is beautiful and green and lush because there's a body of water, and then you move down south and it's very dry and arid. That's why some people call it parched Palestine. But here we realize that no, God plants, transplants trees, and he provides a rich water source so it can grow and thrive and be vital. It reminds me of what Jesus said. His words, abide in me, not around me, not beside me, but abide in me. You see, when the righteous are intimately connected with the Lord, we grow. And there's health and there's beauty in that relationship. But also notice that the tree depicts productivity. It says, which yields its fruit in its season. And that doesn't mean that we only bear fruit once in a while, but that that fruit is timely. And you say, well, what is the fruit here? Well, what is fruit other than the evidence of faith working? It's faith in action, and it's a picture of refreshment. So when you're meditating on the Word and memorizing the Word, and someone comes to you looking for help, you have it readily available to offer to other people, and you become a source of refreshment for them. You are being productive. You are being fruitful. You see, a blessed person will ultimately be blessing to others. This was God's promise. I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and you are going to be a blessing to the nations. The same thing is said to you. I am going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. Which is helpful because I think sometimes we enjoy the blessing and you forget God wants to use you a channel to be a blessing to others. And so it really stops with you. Hear the sermon on Sunday? Maybe it was good, maybe not. But, but who are you handing out truth to? When you study the word on your own, who, who are you discipling and, and putting under your wings? I think a great picture is go back to Israel. You have the Sea of Galilee. And again, everything around it is lush and pretty and green. I, I proposed to my wife on the Sea of Galilee. Gorgeous. But then you follow the Jordan River down all the way to the Dead Sea. Guess why it's called the Dead Sea? Because it's dead. What's the difference between the two? How come there's no living animals? How come there's no plant life? How, how come it's all dry and barren down by the Dead Sea? Well, because the Sea of Galilee has an inlet and an outlet, whereas the Dead Sea doesn't. It just has an inlet. And sometimes when we get all this information, we listen to podcasts and listen to sermons and reading the Bible, but we're not giving it out to other people, it just stops with you and you don't become as fruitful. God has given us the church. This here, even today, is a common means of grace. We come and we're fed, but we're also to go out and feed others. So there's productivity. We're being planted, but also look here. It depicts not just being planted, being permanent, being productive, but there's a perseverance. It says, and its leaf does not wither. 
It's a fascinating statement. We don't have time to get into the, the horticulture and the botany of trees, but, but you need to know this, that most fruit trees, and I didn't know this, are deciduous. I said that to my wife thinking I would stump her, and she just spelled it for me and told me the definition. She, I had to look it up. What does deciduous mean? It means that they're supposed to lose their leaves. But here, the fruit tree is said to, to have leaves that don't wither. And so it is an evergreen tree, and it's always producing fruits. There's health. There's vitality. It's because of its roots, because it's abiding in Christ, because there's a rich water source of the Word and the Holy Spirit. And when you think about all those things, finally you come to, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Prosperity, not health, wealth, and prosperity, not Creflo Dollar and T.D. Jakes and Joel Osteen and all these other guys. No, it's not materialistic. It's not self-centered. This is you will bear fruit. Your prosperity will be the spiritual good that you're able to offer to other people. So the blessed man is the man who is wise in the advice he accepts, holy in his actions, and godly in the attitudes he adopts. The blessed man is the man who's planted, who's permanent, who's productive, who's persevering, who's prosperous. But now comes the strong contrast, the change. The blessed person, the righteous person is genuinely happy, but the perishing person, the wicked person is not. Look there at the text. How the wicked differ. The wicked are not so The righteous are the tree that are planted. The wicked, nothing like it. Not bearing fruit, not green, not prosperous. In fact, the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, it reiterates it with a double negative. Not so the ungodly. Not so. It's as if it's saying, whatever good things can be said of the blessed man, there is no way it could be said of the wicked. And I want you to notice here that there's no other option. There is no middle ground. This this is why people don't like the Bible, because the Bible is black and white. And Psalm 1 probably rubs people the wrong way. It's not politically correct. It's not inclusive. It's very polarizing. You're either on the road of the righteous or the road of the wicked, and that's it. Those first three verses describe in detail what a righteous person looks like. But you say, well, what's the description of a wicked person, an ungodly person? And all I would have to say is rasha'im. Rasha, it doesn't even sound like a good word. Wicked, ungodly. There's a Jewish Hebrew scholar, Nahum Sarna. He did a study on this word in Psalms and Proverbs. And this is what he came up with. This is the description of a wicked person. He says they're marked by arrogance and pride and vain glories brazen face, insolent, derisive, contentious of others. They plot evil on their bed. They scheme against the innocent. They're enamored with injustice, deliberately pervert the administration of justice by means of bribery, lawlessness their hallmark, terror their instrument. They wield that against the lowly, the disadvantaged of society, the widow, the stranger, the orphan is their greatest target. They boast of their unbridled lust, they make an outward show of good, of good, and they cancel with their malice. Their speech is deceitful. They're duplicitous. 
Um, they're fraudulent. They're treacherous. They abuse friendships. They repay good with evil. They repay love with hate. They borrow and never pay back. They abhor the person of integrity. They cannot understand another's concern for the plight of the wretched in society. So they feign compassion. When you read the scripture, that is the description of someone who is wicked. And if you are like me, when you hear that, you say, thank God I am not a wicked person. And the question to you is, should you have that response? Because as you listen to the list, you say, well, that doesn't look like it describes me. Praise God if that's true. But it did at one point. Because even though you might not be able to attach your name or an action or a memory to one of those specific things, the Bible is very clear that Rashim describes any person who is not in a right relationship with the Lord. Which is to say, you might have grandma across the street who's very nice, who's very generous, who goes out and waters her plants and waves hi to you, And yet the Bible says if she is not in a right relationship with the Lord, rasha'im. That is what the Bible says. Because there is no in-between. There is no middle ground. You're either all for God or you're all not for God. And so when you think about yourself or your family members or your neighbors, the question that we need to ask is, is this person in a right standing with God. Everyone is wicked. We are born this way, but do we have the appropriate clothing, the robe of righteousness that makes us acceptable before God? So look, the righteous, they're planted, they're stable, but let's keep reading because the contrast gets worse. This is how the wicked are dead. He is like chaff which the wind drives away. Again, these beautiful word pictures. And this one here is terrifying. So chaff is is the husk. It's that little thin skin around the wheat. The wheat is nourishing. The chaff is not. At harvest time, the farmers come. They gather all this. They put it on the threshing floor. They get the big winnowing fork. They pick it up. They pick it up. They throw it up. And then the wind blows the chaff away and the wheat falls right back down to the threshing floor. And you say, well, what's the point of this analogy or this picture that the wicked are gone? Just like that. Why? There's no substance. There's no fruit. There's no usefulness. And that is the way the Bible describes the wicked. They will be swept away in one instance, away from the presence of God forever. Listen, apart from God, wicked people are empty, rootless, fruitless, lifeless. And that chaff describes the spiritual existence of the ungodly, which will soon be whisked away in judgment. And it gets worse. Look at verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And here the whole psalm pivots on that one word, therefore, You see, the blessed man delights in the word of God, delights in God himself. Therefore, because of that, he stands 
in the assembly of the righteous, but the wicked delight in their own evil counsels and their own sinful ways, and therefore, because of that, they will not be able to stand in the judgment. Charles Spurgeon said it well. He said, look, sinners cannot live in heaven out of their elements. Sooner could a fish live in a tree than a wicked live in heaven. And verse 6 concludes it all. And it concludes it on a great note. Because if you're counted among the righteous, you're blessed. But if you're counted among the wicked and the ungodly, it ends on a gloomy note. This is how the wicked are damned. Verse 6, For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You see, the blessedness is not so much knowing God, but God knowing you. The greatest thing in the world is to be known by God, for God to say to you, you are mine. I love you. I gave my son for you. You belong to me. You are a child of God. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are an inheritor of all the good things that Christ secured for you. How beautiful. Yada, no, not just knowledge, but intimacy. Adam, yada, Eve, he knew his wife. Relationship, tenderness, affection. But it says, but the way of the wicked will perish. Not so, not so for the wicked. And here, in this final verse, Yahweh is finally the subject of the verb, which means that he is the one that ultimately decides. So when we look at election, we believe that with all of our heart because that's what the Bible teaches. Two paths, two, two paths, two people, two places. There are only two kinds of people in the world. And the truth is, there's only two kinds of people here in the pews. And so the question for you is, if you can choose one or the other, which would you choose? And let me bring it real to you, especially to you young people, because it's not a matter of if you choose, but what are you actually choosing? Everyone chooses. Do you want to go down the road, the path of blessing, or do you want to go down the path of cursing? The path of blessing, being planted, being permanent, being productive, be preserving, be prosperous, or the plan of the perishing You'll be unprepared, you'll be unknown, and you will be under punishment, dead, doomed, and ultimately damned. Look, you might be in church this morning, but your soul ultimately will be in heaven or hell. Death is coming, judgment is coming, and the question that you have to answer is, will you be able to stand in the judgment? No one else, not mom, not dad, not your pastor, just you by yourself, will you be able to stand? And this is where the application of the psalm is so important because if you just say, I've got to be this blessed person, I've got to, I've got to read my Bible and I've got to stay away from all these bad things, and that is the wrong direction because the right direction is the blessed man is actually Jesus. Jesus never, ever listened to the counsel of the wicked Oh, he was a friend of sinners, but he didn't follow in their sin. And Jesus never sat with the scoffers. No, what we see from Jesus' life is he is this blessed man. 
And I wish we had all the time in the world to flip on over just one page to Psalm 2. But why don't we do that real quick, because I want to show you something. Turn over to Psalm 2. Verse 7. I will surely tell of the decrees of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter shatter them like a potter's vessel. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. You see, Psalm 1 begins with blessing. Psalm 2 ends with blessing. And all of the words, all the parallels, all the language, all the poetry, those two things go hand in hand. We want to be blessed. We want to pursue blessing. God has given you the greatest blessing in giving you his son. Jesus is that blessed man, and he offers salvation to you if you would embrace him by faith, repent of your sin, so that his righteousness is your righteousness, and you then can therefore stand in the judgment, in the assembly of the righteous. But if you refuse, if you reject, and you want to go your own way, then know for certain the Bible is clear, judgment is coming and you will perish. Let's pray. Father, we again are astounded by the truth of your word, the power of your word. It's not coming from the man behind the pulpit. It's coming from the Spirit of God working through the word of God. And so, Lord, we're thankful for the ways that you have revealed yourself clearly through Psalm 1, Father, we want to be that righteous person on that righteous path and end up in the most righteous place one day. But we're fully aware that we're not going to do that on our own, that we would never even desire to do that. But it is all owing to your marvelous grace. So thank you, Father, for your patience and your kindness and your mercy that you've extended to us. We thank you most of all for your Son. He is the King. He is the one that perfectly obeyed every jot and tittle. He's the one that even wrestled there when Satan threw the temptations, when wickedness was upon him, when it was so strong and so unbearable, he stood under the weight and never once gave in. Not my will, Father, but your wills be done. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your obedience. Thank you for going to the cross for our sins. Thank you for being our substitute. Thank you for the atonement that was pleasing and acceptable in your Father's eyes. Thank you for the blood. God, we thank you for the resurrection, that death cannot hold him, that Satan would never win. We thank you that Even though Satan and Hades want to try to prevail over the church, the church will prevail over them. We thank you, God, that you are strong. We thank you that you're omnipotent. We thank you that you are all wise. And we thank you, God, that you revealed this to us through your precious word. Oh, help us to meditate on your word day and night. May it be sweet to our souls, 
satisfying to our being. May we pursue godliness, Christ-likeness together as a church with the grace you provide. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.